this podcast doesn't have a sponsor, but it is brought to you by a shameless plug for myself. Uh, if you ch- uh, go onto my website and you can practice movement and meditation for a very small fee of 19 euro a month, you can cancel any time and you get a free week's trial. That's kevinboyyoga.ie. Today, <laughs> that was done in one go. Uh, today I have with me Dr. Tom O'Brien. He holds an MA and a PhD in adult and community education, and he specializes in addiction, mental health, and community development. Tom manages an addiction recovery project called San Calpa. I used to. Are um, you used to? Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm gone from there about three years. Tom used to manage a, <laughs> uh, this center. Um, and Tom has been a qualified herbalist since 2012. Yes. Brilliant. Uh, Tom is known as the mental health herbalist on Instagram, and he has just over three, uh, 37,000 subscribers on YouTube, which is very, I'm very jealous of. <laughs> Tom, thank you. No, it's a pleasure to be here, Kevin. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity for the conversation. Looking forward to it. Yeah. How, how's your herbal tea? My herbal robust. Is it robust? robust? Yeah. It's <laughs> very nice. Very nice. You got, you got, I was saying to Tom earlier, it's like, with robust or rooibos, you have to commit to the pronunciation, <laughs> then move on. <laughs> no, that's nice. It's yeah. warming. That's great. Um, yeah, Tom, it's uh, before I, I brought you in, I was talking to Rach about you. And I was asking, because Rach is into, she's into aromatherapy. She's into, um, uh, she's a holistic massage therapist. But she's been using herbs a lot during her pregnancy. Mm. And when you decide to delve into that world and you're not used to it it's actually quite intimidating especially in the pregnancy world because a lot of women who are pregnant it's a a lot of people that are pregnant it's an emotionally charged time of their life and i've been looking with her on the forums the pregnancy forums and people are very opinionated can't take this can't take that and etc um but before we get into that because i'm interested to delve into specific herbs Mm. i've never met a herbalist Wow. <laughs> You're kind. So, so why, why did you decide to become a herbalist? I, I had been living in Spain for two years up until 2007. Uh, my partner's Spanish, so I was given that life a go. And I came back to Ireland for a job interview, um, which I eventually ended up working in San Calpa mm. in 2008. Um but a very good friend of mine, uh, Joe Lucy, died suddenly. He was only 47. He had an aneurysm. And we had a lot of heart disease in my family background as well. My father died of a heart attack. My two uncles, his brothers, died of heart attacks. And my grandmother also had heart disease. So I kind of had been to a lot of funerals uh, where we did the typical Irish thing. You have a fry and you talk about this is the last fry you're going to have and we're going to eat healthily. But I seem to be the only one that actually followed through on that advice. (laughs) So I was kind of always moving towards, you know, some consciousness around a healthier way of living and how can you prevent heart disease. And when my friend Joe died, I was very thrown into a grief where I kind of felt I just had to do something. And to be honest, I could have done a knitting course, a painting course, anything. I just wanted to absorb myself in learning a new skill. But because I had this interest in holistic um, ways of looking at at disease and addiction particularly, um, I came across this course in Port Leash, looked interesting, went down for an interview, liked it, just signed up and went into it. And so it was kind of a circumstances got me there, but there was a backstory that kind of led me to that point. 
So, um, but I would say the strongest motivation in becoming a herbalist has been my work in addiction, mm. and particularly here, which St. Calpa is only down the road from here, over in uh, Bal, what's the Ballybogan, Ballybogan mm. Road. Um, so I was there for eight years, and I saw uh, what I would say is the overuse of medicine in terms of treatment of addiction, um, and. You know, I saw the limitations of that. And I had seen that earlier because I had, I, my PhD, as you mentioned earlier, was in, in adult and community education. I did, did um, a research project on a young person's program in Sean McDermott Street called the Crinian Youth Project. And basically what I did was an analysis of the knowledge used to treat young people with addiction. And the dominant knowledge is medicine. Mm. So my, my PhD had kind of critiqued the medical model of addiction and during that time, I was living in Kerry. My uncle had a house there. It was empty at the time he had passed on. And um, I did a night class in Tralee called Holistic Health and Homeopathy, I think. And uh, that was really just for myself. But uh, my, my PhD was shaped a little bit by holistic thinking and by, um, you know, looking for something more empowering for people. And uh, so then, naturally then, becoming a herbalist became a step in that process. So... Mm. Um, Unfortunately, working in addiction services in Ireland, you know, they're funded primarily by the health system, the HSE, and they're not uh, the greatest fans of holistic medicine. They're predominantly a biomedical model. Um, so it wasn't really easy to practice as a herbalist in the addiction services. But we did use a lot of, you know, natural teas and we did meditation. We even did a bit of yoga um, and so forth. Um, but it was hard to, to really work you know because there's a lot of risks in working with anyone who has an illness in pregnancy not an area i'm very good at you know um, as a man maybe but you know there are lots of herbs that are great for women i find really easy to use them but pregnancy is an area of risk and we can get into that a bit later but yeah. in addiction you know you're dealing with people who've been suffering um for a long time and their their drugs have become a way of it's often referred to as a social blanket, which they wrap themselves in. So these drugs become a way to to cope with life, basically. And they just get deeper and deeper into the addiction with different drugs. And so when you're a herbalist approaching somebody who's deeply addicted, um, there's a lot of risks. So it, And it takes a long time. And that's one of the sort of potential weaknesses and strengths of herbal medicine is that it's... It's perceived as slow, not fit, not quick. Like medicine is, is kind of has this reputation of being quick, fast, magic pill for every ill. Yeah. Um, whereas holistic approaches um, are are slower because they don't they don't work in that way. They it's a totally different kind of paradigm. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been practicing privately then part time myself in based in Rialto. I rebranded myself a couple of years ago as the mental health herbalist because I had this YouTube channel and I was trying to focus and that that focus, you know, was on mental health. And I just, again, not just an addiction, but a depression, anxiety, this huge amount of people suffering. There's little opportunities. Many of them ended up being prescribed medications. And I just really want to to um, be a voice and an advocate and a, and a place where people can explore, uh, you know, a non-medical approach. Mm. Brilliant. I, my experience with herbs, when I was, so I'm 30, I'm nearly 39, when I was about, I would say 33, 
I had really bad digestion. Mm. I mean, really bad. Um, at the time I was vegan, I don't know what the correlation, or if there is any there, um, is a, there is a correlation there, but it was so bad, my digestion. And I, I had en two endoscopies, two colonoscopies, I had samples taken, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it's very unpleasant to get, a, I mean, getting a colonoscopy is unpleasant, but getting endoscopy is even worse, I found. Um, but it's very worrying because it's a part of your body where you don't really understand and you just tend to ignore. And I didn't know what the, what to do. I went to doctors and when I went to the GP, the GP said to me, you have something called colitis, probably, mm. and therefore you need to take these steroids. Mm. I went from the GP straight to the chemist, went into the, the chemist and bought these steroids that cost a lot of money mm. and it was a six-week course then I got onto the Lewis which is a tr the tram here in, in Dublin and when I was on the Lewis I was reading uh the what's in it yeah. trying to understand it and I thought I'm just going to quickly google the name of these steroids mm. and it was just all these forums of people saying I never came off them mm. um I uh, I became all these mad side effects and then I got into, I was on my way to work. I got into work and the guy who was sitting opposite me, he said, oh, you, you look a bit fed up. And I said, oh, I've just been to the GP and he told me that I might have this thing called colitis. Mm. And my CEO at the time, the guy that owned the company, he had um, Crohn's. Mm. The guy opposite me, he was uh, trying to console me. He said, oh, do you know what? I had the same thing. And I said, well, and what, what happened to you? They said, they gave me these steroids, <laughs> right? I did the steroids for uh, a, a couple of months and then the symptoms didn't go away. So they eventually removed my colon. Oh my God. And I was like, right. So I just, I, I threw the, well, I tried to go back with the thing, the, me the medicine, mm. but the steroids, but they wouldn't let me go back, obviously, with them. But because um, they were so expensive. And then I went into, I thought, right, I'm not going to, and I, I traditionally, Tom, I wouldn't even take an aspirin, man. Mm. I, I'd be mm. like, rule against anything yeah. like that um so then i went to uh the health food shop and i just thought ah, you know why not it's worth a lash <laughs> when is it the health food shop and there's a girl there with a tie-dye bandana and you know um, baggy trousers and she's you know very earthy and she said um you know you need to heal i said yeah i know that <laughs> she said uh, well, what what's the issue so you know, she's a female, I'm a male. I'm kind of embarrassed mm. to say, I got the shits, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, help me out here. Um, she says, what you should do is take oil of oregano. Mm. And I thought, well, this oregano, that's stuff you put on your pizza. Like, what, mm. what use is that going to be for me? Mm. Not kidding you, Tom. Um, maybe I'm rem remembering this too fondly than it already was, but I, mm. I, it was days and I was back. Mm. I was back, man. I was like, take it. And that was very powerful stuff. Yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. a tiny drop in like a big glass of water. Yeah. But I was, I don't know what it did to my gut, but I was healed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm converted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's great when people find, I used to have a motto before I became an Arab medicine as empowering medicine was my motto because all medicine, you know, first do no harm and ultimately it should heal you. You know, medicine is ultimately about healing. Um, but the, the modern kind of, well, there's uh, many aspects of medicine, but one of the aspects of modern medicine is it's built around a business model. Mm. And that's been linked into, you know, uh, prescribing and people being on 
medications for a long time and that's seen as treatment. Treatment is not necessarily seen as treating something and then stopping the, the treatment, you know, because you're, you're, you're healed. A lot of treatments now in modern medicine are, are long-term treatments and therefore long-term medication and there's all sorts of complex complexities that can arise because of different interactions and side effects, as you mentioned. But it's really interesting, you know, your experience of oregano. I'm not surprised because... Uh, I, one of my own weaknesses is sugar. You know, <laughs> just coming off this bank holiday weekend, you know, I could feel it in my body. You know, I'm back detoxing again. And sugar, at least, candida in the gut, and it's one of the things I, I have suffered from. And oil of oregano is one of the best. Uh, it's antiviral, antibacterial, um, and that's why it works so well. It helps balance some of, you know, helps kill off some of the bad bacteria in the gut and, and rebalance the gut. And I, I'm becoming really interested in a concept recently called. Um, psychobiotics, which is the whole study of uh, how bacteria in the gut have a psychological impact or psychological f- effect. So it's the whole uh, microbiome of the gut and the balance of ba- good and ba- bad bacteria. There are thousands of different types of bacteria in our gut and, and funguses and viruses that all live in harmony normally. But because of the environment now we live in, a very stressful environment, uh, stress is the biggest, one of the biggest impacts in terms of our health. So a lot of uh, stress is felt in the gut and we then eat or drink or whatever to to deal with that stress and that just compounds the problem. I'm not sure what your history of the colitis was, but uh, a lot of health issues, you know, health starts in the gut and healing starts in the gut. And... Uh, a lot of anxiety, there's a, there's a lot of research, uh, a lot of research around um, the impact of gut health on mental health. So it's really important that people, um, you know, trust their bodies, listen to their symptoms and don't try and suppress them with medication. Because that's, again, another aspect of the difference between holistic medicine and and biomedicine is that you know, traditional or modern medicine, biomedicine is tends to suppress symptoms, mm. whereas herbal medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, natural medicine uh, see symptoms as signs of imbalance. And in this case, your gut out of balance, it was bacteria. The bring that back into balance simply with um, oil of oregano uh, helped you in the longer term because. You know, you would end up with other side effects from the medications. And as you said, from the forums, people end up on them for a longer time. So, mm. um, you know, I think we, we underestimate the power of food, the power of, of simple things, the power of nature. Yeah. Yeah. As even my my sister, who I had dinner with last night, she started, she lives right five minutes away. She's over there. But um, I'm going to give her exactly the address. But she has an, an, a massive garden. And in her garden, she started growing her own vegetables. Tom, mate, she looks great. Mm. My sister, like, she looks so uh, vibrant. Vibrant. Yeah. Hair looks amazing. Yeah. Skin's great. Eyes are bright. And she's eating her own vegetables. She gives them to us as well. And I think there has to be a correlation there. And not mm. just that, eating the vegetables, but also the process of growing them and being clo- closer to nature. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Um, I actually want to ask you about... Um, the candida diet mm, mm. Uh, or candida in general mm. because i th- think from the research me and rach tried this mm. and it's it's really difficult to do the candida essentially and correct if i'm wrong but it's like no sugar 
And have you ever tried it or do you know much about that? No, other, other than, you know, I'm not into kind of diets as such, you know, um, work from the general principle of, you know, as much plant-based food as you can, nuts and seeds as well, and uh, lots of healthy oils. Um, you know, I'm not a vegan, you know, small amounts of meat, you know, uh, can be beneficial to your diet. I'm more into the kind of environmental argument for meat. Meat is a big factor in our destruction of our environment, so that for that reason, I wouldn't you know recommend too much meat. But uh, if people have a small amount, um, so in terms of candida, I think sugar is the biggest feeder of not only candida but also cancer cells and uh, anxiety as well, um, undermining the the nervous system. Mm-hmm. So I I find myself when I'm like the way I uh, the way I look at sugar is it's I call it the bitter principle. So if I have a, if I write a book, I'm going to call it the bitter principle. <laughs> so the bitter principle is that um, we tend to lean away from bitter experiences and bitter feelings. You know, like shame and hurt and anger and uh, insecurity. So we 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 sweeten those feelings with sugar. Sugar is so it's a beautiful substance because it sweetens us. It reduces certain anxieties and stresses, but then. We become dependent on it, brings us out of balance. Our nervous system becomes dependent on it and it affects all of our, our overall health. So when I lean into the bitter, which is a kind of accepting the emptiness, accepting the nothingness, whatever, life isn't going as well as I'd like to expect it to go, or whatever, um, relationships can be stressful, work can be stressful. By And that's the here and now and, you know, all of the meditation, you know, we're we're trying to practice now in this more holistic world where, you know, it's calming ourselves, relaxing, not being stressed. So by leaning into the bitter, embracing the feelings, that's the only way I can beat the sugar. If not, I'm I'm kind of using sugar to self medicate. So look, I've mm. three apples in my bag today. I bring f- t- for my lunch. I'll, that's what I'll eat between now and four o'clock. I'll come home at five o'clock, have a bit of soup or something something to eat. Um, and that's my, you know, sort of. I'm getting fruit sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, maybe one square of white chocolate per day, maybe two. White chocolate. Yeah, it's, okay. it's if white, it's just it's that little bit sweeter. Eluding <laughs> 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 myself, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I, 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 I'm, I'm addicted when it comes to sugar. I mean, if I have sugar, I want more sugar. So mm. I, I have to be very disciplined, and I, I go through this cyclical process. So we do need sugar. We need sugar to convert into energy, and sugar is extracted from alcohol, extracted from bread. Um, it's par- it's very hard to live without sugar, but I do think it's good to reduce your impact of sugar, intake of sugar. Um, it's good to fast, have sugar-free days. Mm, yeah. It's good to have a period of a month with really low sugar. But uh, you know, I think when I work with uh, you know a client who comes to me and they want to make a change, I always try and help them to make sustainable changes. So make one small change. So if sugar is the predominant issue in their health, I will try and work with them to try and reduce sugar, you know, but not to change everything else. Just make one small change. Radical changes d- aren't sustainable. People don't just keep them going, you know. Yeah. They, they tend to relapse or for some reason get back into old habits. So um, in terms of candida, if you're eating, you know, a fairly healthy plant-based diet, uh, you're taking, you know, oil of oregano on, you know, cyclical basis, like for take it, take it for three months, take a break for three months or six months, take it again. You know, that's the way I would recommend herbs. Take them for 12 weeks, uh, three months, take a break and so forth. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean... It's tough, as you said, maybe 
maybe actually even thinking about it as a diet is the wrong mindset because then it seems like you're restricting yourself and it's only going to be temporary as mm. opposed to good habits going forward. Yeah, try to try to build stuff into your life that you sustain and, as you say, good habits. Apple cider vinegar is also brilliant for a lot of health issues. It's, yeah. a, it's a sour, you know, if, you know, what I call it, but it's, it's pretty sour. It's on that bitter scale. Mm. Um, but I, I find it great because my candida comes out through my skin, mm. you know, in a kind of a rash, and I would just put a gentle... Uh, bit of externally using uh, and it 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 suppresses it inward and therefore you have to be taken internally as well so um the more you reduce your sugar intake the more you upset the bacterial balance and you'll get uh fungi there's there's a theory that the fungi and the bacteria are related to food cravings so depending on the balance of your gut it will it will seek a food craving and the fungi can come out in different parts of your body, your feet, your you know, in sweaty areas of your body particularly. Yeah. So, but we need that fungi in uh, in our system. That's why if you take too much um, oil of oregano, you can you know do to harm to your gut balance. So, fermented foods, then of course they they would be you know at the top of the pyramid in terms of health foods, but also for tackling things like uh, candida because we're like as you mentioned, your sister growing organic vegetables at home. What they have is they already have these um, microorganisms inside plant organisms living in the plant, like the, and they're the bacteria and, and so forth that we need to to maintain that gut health. So mm. things like sauerkraut, kombucha, kefir milk, kefir water, um, you know, all of these fermented. You can get fermented cheeses now. There's great fermenter down in Wicklow um, mm. doing fermented cheeses, sourdough bread. I, I really love sourdough bread bit of olive oil, a bit of salt. That's mm. my breakfast with a bit of banana. Nice. Yeah, but these foods aren't don't seem traditional, especially in Ireland, because I lived in Korea, and in Korea they eat kimchi That's because, right, yeah. um, you know, during the war they, could, they wanted food that they could mm. store for ages that wouldn't go off. And even if you look at places like uh, Denmark, they also ferment a lot of their food. So it's, it's very common, but I think what is... Mm, Led us astray a little bit is the traditional food pyramid, mm. you know, uh, and actually Rachel was telling me about this that uh, she's I think it, she said it was in Sapiens the book Sapiens, mm. but talking about how we think of the pyramid and at the bottom is all the carb or, or mm. is it the carbohydrates at the bottom? Mm. You know that's the mm. main thing mm. we should be in, but in fact it should be flipped on its head, mm. you know, and yeah. uh, we should be um, almost eating you could say like a paleo style diet, as in vegetables, fruit. And nuts and seeds as mm. you were saying and a little bit of meat but i think what a concept that we don't uh, acknowledge enough is sometimes we talk about like being healthy and being at a healthy weight but actually when you're overweight from mm. what i understand as you just alluded to there it's not you who necessarily craves the food it's the the microorganisms yeah micro in your gut yeah which is mad to think about it <laughs> yeah yeah no that's it and there's there's two researchers down in cork they've written this book called the psychobiotics um i can't think of their names at the top of my head but you can put the link in the description um but th they're they're studying this and i mean th it's it's clear that there we have more bacteria microorganisms in our body than we have cells and uh, those people who are into consciousness thinking and philosophers thinking about consciousness ask the question then are we what are we then? Are we human or <laughs> are we bacteria? And, you know, we're in this pandemic at the moment and, you know, there are very few people talking about the immune system. 
talking about the threat of the virus and how dangerous it is, and it is dangerous, particularly for vulnerable populations. But we have to we have to really realize that we we are part of nature. Humans are part of nature. We live in nature, and there's even studies now coming out looking at how clean houses, particularly super clean houses, are bad for children's health because we we need to be exposed to to natural microorganisms that are in our in our air, in our soil, in our in our in our environments. And it's our immune system then that prepares and builds up our protection for that. Now, in terms of the coronavirus, it's obviously a new threat and the, the, our immune system has collectively needs time to catch up. So that's going to take time. But we need to 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 really work on our immune system. And, and that is then honouring that, you know, this, these microorganisms in our system need to be kept in tune and in balance. And if we're, if we're not maintaining that balance, modern kind of products and there's a there's a great book called Death by Supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Nice. But basically the thesis is that supermarkets don't sell food. Now that's not completely true because if you go to little, you know, you get your organic vegetables, you know, your vegetables at least some of them are organic. So it's the the idea that uh, a lot of foods now are, have been turned into products. It's lovely colourful packaging, a lot of psychology used to make it attractive a lot of sugar in a lot of products and so we there's a move obviously back to you know organic farmers markets local healthy natural green plant-based and that's really powerful and supermarkets are catching up so we need to take much more control over the food we consume food is medicine food is healing if not you know i I like the principle 80 20 you know 80 percent good 20% 20% maybe pleasurable, you know, you know, I enjoy a glass of wine, I enjoy chocolate, I enjoy, um, you know, an odd takeaway. You know, we need to enjoy food. We can't be too intense about it or too serious about it. Uh, food is a big part of our social rituals. It's a big part of how we connect with people, how we celebrate. And and there's, there's a real food revolution going on. I mean, you know, there's so many new uh, sources coming out, books, beautiful books coming out now, fermented foods, natural foods and so forth, the happy pair leading the battle there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, food as medicine is, is a big thing and um, you're lucky to have your sister growing your vegetables. <laughs> <for> you. <laughs> She's my supplier. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, the, the massive benefit of the internet is that we can learn about uh, very quickly about how other people live and other alternative ways to live than what we're told i mean mm. very rarely you never see an advert for kale you know yeah. you, you see an advert for like bird's eye pancakes whatever yeah. it may, they may be yeah. um but i food is especially when you're self-employed and you're working from home mm. food becomes a comfort mm. uh, and even if you're there's a, i think there's a misconception that if you're if you look healthy you are healthy just mm. because you're mm. slim doesn't mean you're healthy no um you may be malnourished um, mm-hmm. but you just happen to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I also experience, I think most people do, the, the, the sugar addiction. And you you mentioned there about um, instead of succumbing to that, instead sitting with the emptiness, whatever it may be. <laughs> and I know that sounds a bit uh, maybe melodramatic, but mm. in fact, uh, it is important to recognize the root of addiction. Mm. Um I, you know, I have people very close to me, my family, that have experienced severe addiction mm-hmm. and uh, and experienced that growing up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, sometimes you, you look at the person as 
like why would you do this as if it's like a choice as opposed to this is someone that's suffering they weren't sh now this is i know very um uh what is it, like a rudimentary way of explaining it but like to me it's like someone who hasn't is trying to replace something mm. um now i don't understand it as well as you do but what what would you say that the biggest misconception is or about addiction that we have yeah i think uh, the idea that addiction is a disease basically a physical disease meaning some pathology in your cellular structure or in your genetic structure that in the the medical model for interpreting disease involves questions about your you know your your parents your 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 um genealogical background you know did, did your parents drink did they use drugs and so forth so the way that addiction is diagnosed is 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 also linked to parental inheritance so that's i think a big misconception that addiction is inherited now you, you we do inherit psychological and emotional pain from our parents and our family because they're not perfect and they have to grow up in an imperfect world and therefore there's times we feel neglected and mm -hmm. you know our needs were, were not met and so forth and that can lead to insecurity but uh, i think this is one of the biggest um, misconceptions but it then it's it's dominated by the medical model that that have a monopoly on how addiction is shaped and treated so if if you take it from a different angle as you were kind of alluding to the idea that it's linked to social suffering um and and we know that it is and the research in psychology shows a lot of it is to do with attachment you know having poor attachments lead to people feeling insecure and that can lead to then to finding ways to fill that emptiness and so forth and so some people do become compulsive you know i have compulsive behaviors um they're not harmful um but people who become addicted to a substance like sugar or alcohol or heroin or cocaine or tablets um they are leaning out of the bitter and uh, you know wait into the kind of escape and um, it becomes a cycle it becomes a way of coping it's, uh, they talk about being learned behavior so you know I, I i i wrote a paper two years ago i presented at a conference in sweden um called the medicalization of social suffering mm. nobody was really interested in it it's not, <laughs> a, very, it's not a very popular paper <laughs> it's niche <laughs> yeah isn't it it's very niche but um I, i'm very proud of that kind of exploration i'd love to do more work in that area because i do believe that all mental health issues would be addiction anxiety are a form of suffering so if we approach a person who's suffering uh, from a compassionate point of view from a holistic point of view in terms of you know some people are suffering because their identity is ruptured in a sense that you know if you're unemployed or you don't have skills to sell you can feel unvalued and we do undervalue unemployed people in society there is a stigma right. attached to being unemployed it's not a mm -hmm. you know something we 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 honor the unemployed we don't really we we, we protect them and we mind them but we want them to get a job pay their taxes and that's okay we need to live in this society but there are other people stig stigmatized because of their sexuality because of their ethnic origin because of whatever and when people if people in recovery you know who recover themselves through NA and these support groups, they realize that social connections, new connections to these groups, the fellowship they call it, is probably one of the most powerful ways to recover because you have somebody who's going to be your sponsor, they, they check in on you, they go for coffee, and you begin to feel human dignity and respect again. So 
It's a big area, but I do think that more there's a, there's a growing recovery movement in Ireland, and it's it, it's a very different paradigm to the, to the medical one where the professionals do the treatment and they do the helping, they do the fixing. But unfortunately, I mean, I I looked at the the, the figures for for methadone uh, and methadone deaths in Ireland, for example, in the early nineties, in the mid nineties, when methadone was introduced first, and methadone is a very good drug. I'd love to be able to prescribe it myself. But the problem with methadone is when it was introduced in the 90s, there was around 150 deaths per year. Now there's 600 deaths per year. So it has incremented, the number of drug-related deaths has continued to rise. It's stable around between 500 and 600. But every year now, around five or 600 people die from drug-related deaths. We have methadone, we have uh, other medical treatments like benzodiazepines um, and so forth. And for me, it's, it's, it's the problem is getting bigger. There's an industry growing around addiction. Uh, more and more people are, are caught in addiction. People end up on medications for addiction for longer. Uh, people are finding it harder to get off those medications. And we need to... It's the same if you look at suicide. We need to look at why are people as trying to escape from their situation. We need to find ways to, to help people have value and meaning and dignity. And I think that is at the core. Um, and... Even at a more advanced level of development where we're trying to raise our own consciousness, I think um, there is a need for a society that respects our, our human dignity and our, our purpose. Our purpose is not economic activity. I think a lot of what's called a neoliberal co- economy, it's just a way of describing you know, a co- an economy that, that thrives on, 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 on money. Therefore, people are seen as, as units of profit. And in this neoliberal economy, we value uh, the economy more than the society. Now, in this pandemic, we've shown that we actually value the society because we're protecting the society by somehow slowing down the economy. But we need to learn that um, and, 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 and understand that um, everybody needs to feel human dignity and respect, and out of that, they flourish. Um, but it, it costs money to, to have that kind of society. It's a, it's a cheaper society to have people, just force people into work. Uh, if people can't get into work, then they feel stigmatised, they don't feel value, and we need, to, we need to keep working on the social contract, the social um, investing in programmes that get people to break the cycle of poverty, because we're still just kind of tinkering with the edges. You know, we're, um, we're in a very s- structurally unequal society, and we're, we're not always, you know, if you talk about Black Lives Matter, migrant issues, racism, you know, we're, we're, we're sometimes dealing with things as they trend, but we're not just building in sustainable solutions where, where we, we all grow. No, we are, we're getting better, I think, but, you know, sometimes people feel we need to move a bit faster. Mm. And does that answer your question? Uh, phenomenal. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to say anything to that. So, that was so brilliant. Um, you, you mentioned shame. I have said before that I understand why a man would kill himself if he couldn't look after his family. Mm-hmm. And as a self-employed person, I work very hard. Like I, I, this is basically all, all I do. But you know, re- recently, well, well, there are times in life where you think, like, um, can I actually? like uh, support my soon-to-be wife or about to have a kid and stuff. And I did, I did have a, a you know, a, a recently a, an episode where, or a, a situation where I felt like my uh, career was 
<laughs> under threat as it were yeah and i spoke to my uh i won't say who but i spoke to someone about this and um the you know they asked me like would you actually kill yourself um and i wouldn't <laughs> like when it when it comes to it and the reason is because uh my mum uh, and my dad like really loved me you know mm. as in when i was growing up there we had a, we had you know challenges and whatever mm. but fundamentally i felt loved and um i'm now in a very loving relationship where although i want to be like the provider as it were and to give people a good life um i realize that's not what my all my value is on but i think that it, it's so i'm so glad you said that there is a lot of shame that people have uh, behind being unemployed mm. and um and i think god bless right god bless america for mm. a start america's fantastic whatever but and you know every day make it happen and you know even like they say um have a nice day now or have a great day mm. but really a lot of days aren't great yeah. <laughs> and y y your your capitalism has many benefits but the downside of it is as you said you get forgotten about mm. if you fail you're considered a failure if you lose you're considered a loser mm. like you're defined by that mm. and people will throw away that comment oh he's a loser mm. very like and they don't realize the amount of shame that's b behind that um i um and I, I, I'm kind of gone on a bit of a monologue here, yeah. but but I this is something I haven't ever discussed with anyone actually mm. because me and Rach uh, and it ties into money and success. Mm. Like um, sometimes you perceive someone to be successful, but the reality is I live in like a half a house, a little a flat, and we want to buy a house, right? And I thought, oh, we'll live in this area, that area. We can't afford to live any. We can barely afford a house. Mm. I don't even think we'll get a house. We'll probably have to get another apartment without a garden. And we're going to be living in, I'm not going to shame any areas, but think of like the top three, the bottom three areas in Dublin that people would often consider to be like the roughest. That's probably where we're going to live, right? <laughs> That's where I live. That's where I live. So I'm not saying names, but because that might be my next neighborhood. But I said to my mum, like, mum, um, you know, me and Rach are going to move. We're going to have our baby when she's a, the baby's a year old. We'd like to have a bigger place, and and our own place. And my I'm named a couple of the places to my mum. My mum is like old school Irish Catholic. You know, religious iconography all over mm. the house. Used to throw holy water on as we were leaving the house and we were going out <laughs> on the town. And um, she said, "Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of drug drug addicts there." Now, mm. God bless my mum. She means the best. Like she means well, but it's a different generation. She's like, "Well, if you, I wouldn't bring up a child there because there's a lot of drug addicts there." Mm. And it got me thinking to myself, "Am I because of my financial situation?" Um, am I going to be relegated to live somewhere that's with loads of pe with people that have are suffering from drug addiction? But but the point I'm trying to get at Tom is, is that a stigma I have in my mind from my mother and other people, or in middle class areas are there as much drug addiction? But it, maybe it's pills or something. Because what I do know is when you live in a working, I'm from a working class area in the council estate. Mm. When you when you're from an area like that, people talk to each other. There's actually a community. Mm. Middle class areas. Not so much. Not so much. So my, my, what I'm getting at, Tom, is um, is uh, is that a ra an irrational fear that I have? And um, do you think that even if you grow up in an area that maybe has people that uh, are addicted to drugs, 
that you can raise a child without that happening. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, that's a lot there. Yeah, no, it's it's a very common sort of challenge or dilemma that people face because I think behind the, the essence of the experience of shame is this perception of what is success in society. How do, as a man, how do I describe to my peers that I've made it? You know, what kind of car do I need to have? What kind of house do I need to have? Um, the location of the house, the career, the, the qualifications, the, 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 the salary that I'm on and so forth. And that I think there's a mythology in that because we all buy into this model of society and we, we work towards these kind of thresholds. Oh, I have now a house, I have it in this area, I have my car, I have my, my promotion. But we begin to, maybe in your 40s, if you're lucky, or if you're in your 50s, now I'm 53, um, you begin to realize what is more important is uh, freedom uh, and peace of mind. And this is the kind of, the, the, let's say, the nemesis or the opposite of, of shame. Shame is really a prison in which I've become trapped because I, I'm, I'm not experiencing the hurt that is laid it upon me. You know, I'm, I'm a failure, I'm unemployed, I'm an addict, I'm whatever. I, I'm not contributing to society. So I'm, I'm stigmatized. And we, we all, nobody wants to live with stigma because stigma is psychological suffering, intense psychological suffering. That, that does lead to people to commit suicide. So I think what, I, what we need to begin to, to, to realize, say, from the likes of Ram Das, who uh, has become a big influence in my life in the last two years when I discovered him, and he's towards the end of his life. He, he there's I think there's a film now called Becoming Nobody, and there's mm. a book where he began to epitomize his life's message in this phrase, becoming nobody, because he described himself as a somebody. You know, he was a professor in Harvard. He had his own private jet. He had a, a motorbike. Uh, he had this lifestyle. He was a, he grew up in a Welsh Jewish family in New York. Uh, but then he lost it all when uh, he was sacked from Harvard because he was exploring f- um, medical mushrooms and uh, consciousness, consciousness. And so towards the end of his life, then it's this idea of becoming nobody. We, we, we invest too much in our ego. My ego is, you know, I have a PhD or I have this job or this status. But it's, n- it's really my ego. It doesn't rescue me from my, my shame. And so... By detaching from the ego, which sounds very easy, um, and being co- becoming free from the labels, you know, we we kind of value ourselves according to the labels people give us, and we we they're not really liberating. I th- I'm not sure if I'm trying to explain myself well, but no, bas- you didn't, you didn't. basically the, the 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 addict in terms of who is on the verge of suicide because you know uh, they can't see any hope. Um, so imagine to be in a situation where you can't see any hope. So you contemplate suicide. You're so stigmatized, so shamed, so broken. And you're in a society where this is happening on a regular basis. And how do we create a society that doesn't shame and stigmatize people? Why, why does it matter where you live? Why does it matter what kind of job you have? Why does it matter what kind of qualifications you have? Because these are kind of hierarchies of which... In Trappos, you get, it, like in academia, I, I have a PhD, but I, I'm not a classic academic because I, I'm a creative person. I'm a thinker. Even the, the, even the idea of having a PhD and becoming a herbalist, people would think, that's not good for your career. <laughs> you know, the herbal medicine isn't seen as very popular in academia. 
So I, I've made ch- silly kind of choices that haven't led to, to more power and status, but have led to sometimes confusion, sometimes disorientation, sometimes feeling, yeah, I haven't succeeded. But then finding light and finding freedom and finding uh, spaces where you can really uh, become free. And, and freedom is the ultimate goal. The assumption of the capitalist society is the more capital you have, the more freedom you have. But there's a lot of research says that that's not true. And it's, you know, you build more walls and more barriers between you and your community. As you said, in working class communities, people have this stronger sense of neighborhood, of their neighbors. They say hello to each other. And that is, uh, Rialto, where I live, is is, is a bit like that. Um, whereas in, in, in more uh, middle class areas, um, there's this perception that, you know, you don't talk to your neighbors because they're all kind of watching the Joneses as such. And... Um, mm. The, there's a, actually, I, I love the whole area of research now, which is about um, the social cure. The social cure basically is, is the research into social connections, which we've been talking about earlier. The more social connections we have, the healthier we will be. As you described earlier, health, you can look healthy. It doesn't necessarily mean you're healthy. Health is, is, a, is uh, have you good social connections? Have you vibrancy? Have you freedom? Uh, and have you choice? Mm. You know, so, yeah, I think... Uh, I think we have a lot to to try and change in society. We have to keep believing in ourselves, even if nobody else is believing in us. We have to keep uh, stepping outside our comfort zone. And, you know, it's the same for the addict who's really trapped. You know, for them to recover is really a long journey of stepping outside their comfort zone. Because the comfort zone is where the drugs are. Mm. And to step out is to reduce your dependency on those drugs. Um but I wonder then if 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 you're in a neighbor if you 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 live in a neighborhood where a lot of people are, take drugs, the young people take drugs, what can you do as parents who have a child to ensure that they don't? I mean, it, are are people led by their peers or are they led by they see what their parents do? Like I I um, am a ver- very disciplined person, a very disciplined like and but. That's like because when I was younger, I wasn't disciplined, and uh, I realized, oh, if you actually be quite disciplined, you loads of good things happen. <laughs> um, so I would hope that my kids and kids eventually mm. will see me and be like, oh, dad gets up at this time every time he does this, that, and the other, and he kind of sticks by this, and they see that Rach is very disciplined and very right mm. and very caring and very nurturing, and I'd, I would hope that would be enough for the kid not to then succumb to addiction. Yeah. But um, is that naive? No, I think uh, every parent, I'm not a parent, so I can really talk kind of from what I've seen, my my, my uh, nephews and nieces, cousins and, and so forth, um, and friends. Um, I think um, being a parent is a very challenging uh, role. But I like I, I I have this fantasy if I was a parent, I'd be the kind of parent to throw my kid into the swimming pool, <laughs> swim, <laughs> bring them to the forest and lose them for a little bit, find your way back. You know, yeah. I do I do see some parents um, overly possessive, in the sense that what ha- can happen is that a parent when a parent loses their identity, uh, to the the identity of the parent. I think it's not good for the child. So it's like, you're my child. You'll do it my way. And 
it becomes a kind of a controlling relationship. Whereas a lot of the, the sort of stuff I see on social media in terms of good advice for building resilient children is having, you know, open conversations, you know, having rituals, making sure you have, you know, screen free time, having uh, conversations with children, having, you know, meals with children, children have like trying to yeah live in a bubble inside the wider bubble where you know there's a lot of pressures and peer pressures but um really becoming a stigma free zone a shame free zone as well where you can actually talk about stuff that is difficult having difficult conversations with children you know probably you know you've seen the films you know the, you know well, there's one that comes to mind i can't think of the name of it but it's um it's basically allowing children to challenge their parents in conversations about life and parents being allowed allowing themselves to be educated in that conversation rather than i think that the, the thing is if, if we control other people we don't nurture freedom and therefore they're more likely to succumb to peer pressure because they're rebelling mm, you know now yeah, that I, again there's a lot of research done on addiction in terms of around you know peer, um, what they call twin studies so they they, stu they study twins that were adopted out to different families that came from alcoholic families and so forth. There's different variables, and they see what is the influence. Why does one twin become addicted and another doesn't? And uh, it's very complex, and it, there's no easy answer. But I think I love the work of Brenny Brown. Mm. She talks a lot about vulnerability and shame. And uh, for me, she's the go-to expert in terms of trying to, you know, uh, future-proof your children, <laughs> you know, to be, uh, you know, confident in themselves. Yeah. Like, confidence is not, the misperception of confidence is that it's about being strong and knowing everything. Confidence is more about being vulnerable, mm -hmm. allowing yourself to be vulnerable, um, going against the grain. We're all in, in situations where we kind of don't speak up because, you know, we're, we're afraid to you know, not be liked or we want to fit in or we don't want to challenge or we don't want conflict. But uh, there is a need to find a way to speak out against injustices or unfairnesses in a way that's compassionate, in a way that's um, loving, you know, mm. and in a way that's non-threatening. So, yeah, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that... Um it's something I suppose you have to release a little bit of control. You can't uh, try to manage absolutely everything because it's just you. That's no way to live. Um, and what you said there about letting the person rebel to you is or, uh, the person as, as in the child is so important. It might be a, a case that I'm kind of overthinking this a little bit. And maybe as well, some things become instinctive and you just, yeah. that's just how it I, I think so. And I think um, mm. sometimes no matter what we do, it's kind of nearly too late to do anything. It's the sense that, you know, we will transfer onto our, our children unconscious anxieties and unconscious biases. So mm. I think, yeah, the more it's to be like the parent is not a finished, like the baby looks like a, an emerging product as such. It's a new, you know, it's growing, it's going to evolve. And the assumption is that the parent has evolved and it's fixed. Mm. But the, I think it's the idea to keep yourself evolving allow yourself to evolve, um, you know, and allow that relationship with your child to become a kind of a, a new map mm -hmm. to explore, you know, parenthood. Because uh, there is a, a thing called postnatal depression for men. I, I, I'm not sure is that the right term. 
hmm. that men can also suffer after the birth of the baby because it, it's it's challenging. It's a new role, and you know maybe you have less time for what you normally do, and you, you have a new focus. So um, I think there's a lot of things misunderstood or not understood for men in general, and then men who are parents. Um, and I really liked your interview with uh, Dara Stewart, mm-hmm. the men in circles. I've started following him, mm-hmm. and I liked uh, I liked that kind of approach because I do think that there's a need for men as well to 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 find archetypes and, and ways of thinking about themselves that it's not based on the macho survivor, mm. fixer, doer, you know, bringer of food. <laughs> yeah, bringer of food. <laughs> yeah, um, that, that conversation with Dara, after I had that with him, I started, um, like sometimes me and Rachel watch, say, romantic comedies, rom-coms, mm. and uh, I thought to myself, rom-coms have got a lot to answer for. I mean, they paint the picture that um, men are always charming, say the right things, and when you end up together, uh, that you're going to be happy then together. And it's not like being a parent or a person; it's not a work in progress. And how, um, and often a lot of love, how it's shown on TV and in the media, is how to acquire love, and then or how love ends. It doesn't show actually the being in love bit. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and, and work, and and the same way you have discipline about exercising or eating do you have discipline to like give your partner um a kiss or a hug or mm. to ask them if they're okay and li- actually listen to them and um all, all of that requires um being more mindful and i'm really conscious of this like uh, how much i use my phone lately and when i eventually do become a parent um will i be looking at my phone a lot like i am now even Rach said it to me last week she goes Kev, I've noticed like the last week you've really been glued to your phone. I take it everywhere with me, you know, mm. and um, it's something I need to I need to kind of uh, keep myself in check about. Um, Tom, I'm conscious of your time. I wanted to ask you though, um, Rach, as you know, and I know pregnancy is not mm. your thing, and that's fine. Mm. But we wanted to understand as a household um, what would be like the kind of um, the go-to or the the essential herbs that every household could have or should have maybe yeah so like the main thing with pregnancy is caution so that's the main principle there are herbs that you can use so then in in the general household what herbs would be great i think everyone should have chamomile chamomile is so relaxing it's calming it's a sedative it's it's great for promoting sleep so it's an anti-stress herb Valerian root mm. is one of my favorite nervous system herbs to relax. All my favorite herbs are for the nervous system. And hawthorn, well, hawthorn is for the heart, and that's an important part of the nervous system as well. Um, so you can have hawthorn tincture. The hawthorn berries will be coming out in um, August, September, and it's very easy to make your own homemade tincture by a basic... Uh, vodka alcoholic drink and you make your tincture by pouring put the berries into a mason jar fill it with uh, the alcohol leave it there for about two weeks stir it each day and then drain it off and you have the tincture of the hawthorn which is a really beautiful medicinal tonic for the heart so you have your 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 valerian root then you can buy that in capsules tincture but you can also get it in the root form make a, a tea or decoction um and that's really calming so they would be n- nice nervous system herbs. Then something for the lungs, 
because a lot of health issues arise in the lungs as well and to do with grief and loss, the energy of the lungs is a lot about letting go. So we need to nurture the lungs and um, mullen is a beautiful herb for the, you know, you can get mullen tincture, mullen tea. Um, mullen is a really nice herb. Um, then you have uh, the usual um, rosemary, great for boosting clarity, concentration. You know, people use it a lot in medicinal cooking. Um, but you can make a rosemary tea. You can add um, sage. Sage is a really nice uh, dried uh, sage for, for hormone balancing for women particularly, but also for men. Um, so what else do I have in my kitchen cabinet? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have I have so many herbs at home. You know, there's, um, it's one of the nice things about being a herbalist. I, I use a lot of the herbs myself. But I think, yeah, some antivirals like... Um, uh, oil of oregano that you mentioned at the beginning, powerful. Um, apple cider vinegar is not a herb, but it's really health tonic. Um, what else? Um, yeah, I, I go through cycles of herbs. You know, I take a herb maybe for a month. You know, I, I go through different um, organs. I would take a herb for, for the heart, for the lungs, for the kidneys, for the liver. So I, I nearly as much as having, you know, a collection of herbs, you want to have two or three books. And I can recommend, you can find them on my Instagram account, you know, a couple of good household books, you know, that, that will you be able to look up a remedy for cuts and braises. Comfrey cream would be a really nice one to have. Mm-hmm. Comfrey cream is a, well, comfrey is a cell proliferant, which basically means it makes cells grow really fast. So it's really healing and it's great for muscles and um, cuts and braises. Um, you can also have oil, medicinal oils then as well, you know, comfrey oil, sweet oil. Metasweet grows along canals. It's like has that like sheep's wool, white kind of fluff on the leaf, um, and you can make a medicinal oil out of that. Great for arthritis. Uh, cayenne pepper, very simple, used a lot with uh, hot curries and so forth. But cayenne is a great heart tonic. I recommend it for anybody that's not on medication for the heart. Um, uh, a tip of a teaspoon in a glass of water per day. It's hot to drink. But once it goes down, it's it's grand. It's you know it's it's okay, um, but it's a really great uh, for balancing blood pressure. If your blood pressure is high, it brings it down. If it's low, it brings it up because it helps increase circulation. Hmm. So they they'd be the kind of ones you know for the heart, um, cayenne, comfrey for the skin, an oil um, like metasweet, uh, uh, the chamomile, valerian, um, yarrow also grows wild. Um, and it's great for a lot of things because it's heating, so it'll heat up and kill those microorganisms as well. Um, but yeah, maybe look look for a, a nice home herbal book. You can make a few recipes. I mean, everybody should be having kind of some herbal teas and even peppermint. I mean, we buy a lot of peppermint teas, um, or if you can buy peppermint leaf, even better. Peppermint is really calming on digestion, as aniseed is. Um, so peppermint would be a nice regular tea. Mm. Um, yeah. Valerian root, though, I have it in the capsules. Mm. Um, is it okay? How, how long would you, I tend to get to sleep very easily, but I wake up very early and I can't get back to sleep. Yeah. And I don't know the correlation is there, but I would, I would like things to, take, to calm me down. I don't drink coffee anymore, mm. for example. Um, but my question is, valerian root, is there a certain amount of time you should, after which you should stop taking it? 
Probably, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of think a 12-week cycle, which is three months, is a, is a nice cycle for the body to, okay. to be on a herb and then take a break from it and move on to something else. Ashwanda as well is another great adaptogen herb for stress. You take it in capsule forms as well in a, in a cycle of 12 weeks. Um, the sleep thing as well, I, I, I wake up a lot at night um, and I go back to sleep quite quickly. Um, it can be to do with this... Um, but the certain ry- rhythms, this, mm-hmm. this rhythm that affects the body and different organs can wake us up. So, um, you know, I, I work with people who have insomnia. It's a very difficult thing to treat because it's, uh, it has a strong psychological component. But, um, you know, I would recommend some for some people, CBD oil is quite powerful. It's the, mm-hmm. the, the anti-anxiety alkaloid of the cannabis plant. Uh, it's sold in health shops as a food supplement, so it's quite... Uh, you know, a small 5% um, CBD in it, but it's very relaxing on the nervous system. Mm. Um, Speaking of relaxing nervous system, and this is my last question, is there any herbs to give a dog to reduce his barking? (laughs) (laughs) Serious question. Yeah, I mean, there are herbalists that work with dogs and animals and horses. Um, I don't. But um, if I was to think about it using the principles of herbal medicine, you know, I would would think about, you know... um, a lot to do with the dog, the dog's kind of sense of their own nervous system. Dogs have a language of their own. They, they communicate to us and to, to other dogs and animals. So, you know, dog, some dogs can be nervous um, and they have a nervous disposition. So, you know, you could look at trying to put, um, you know, a, a chamomile tea with some valerian, maybe lemon balm, passion flower. There are two other lovely herbs, lemon balm, passion flower. Mm. Um, making up a, 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 a nice uh, drink, you know, and give them give them a herbal tea and see how it goes. But I would say, you know, a combination of petting, you know. <laughs> and uh, oh, Of course, we do. We do love him. I'm just wondering if there's any... Does he bark at certain times? Or he barks at strangers? He, uh, he barks at strangers. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he just barks generally. I re- was reading about it and supposedly the theory is that he's stressed from looking after the house. Yeah, he's, he feels <laughs> a strong protective role. and he's, he's doing that role and he's proud. I mean, you've seen him. He's like, yeah, you can yeah. put him in your, your handbag. Yeah, right? Right. and he's cute as well. <laughs> he's not the best guard dog, but he's very loud. But um, Tom, that was absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to do a sign, off, a sign off here. Um, if you'd like to follow Tom online, you go to the mental health herbalist, the mental health herbalist. Yeah. Fantastic, excellent, and same on YouTube. Yeah, same on YouTube. And uh, Tom does a lot of how-to, very useful videos on YouTube. Uh, if you'd like to follow me, it's Kevin Boyoga. Yoga. You know about the platform thing already. Thanks so much for listening or watching, and see you next week. <laughs>